Hello, What the Fintech listener. Alex here, just uh, butting in at the top of the show to give you a little bit of a notice about Dreams. Dreams is a unique way of engaging banking customers rooted in psychology, neuroscience, and behavioral economics. The result is a customer experience that engages customers on a personal and emotional level and effectively boosts their financial well-being. By collecting valuable intent data, Dreams also enables you to effectively support your customers along their customer journey with highly accurate recommendations at the right time. The solution includes a saving, investment, and debt management module that exists as a CX layer on top of your existing application and can be seamlessly plugged in within a few weeks. To get a demo of Dreams and discuss how it can help you engage your customers, just drop a message to sales at getdreams.com. That's sales at getdreams.com. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Henrik Rosval, CEO and founder of Dreams. Welcome to the show, Henrik. Thank you, Alex. It's uh, fantastic to have you on. And wow, we've got a, a great episode today. We're going to be talking about a range of topics, uh, digital banking, the role of big tech and fintech, customer experience, and how banks are keeping up or not keeping up with the new challenges facing them in this, in air quotes, new normal world. But first, as always, is our news in numbers segment. Regular listeners will know this is where we've gone out and found news stories with interesting numbers in the title and then dissect them and analyze them. It's traditional, as always, that our guest goes first. So, Henrik, uh, what story has caught your eye recently in the news? I think creative packaging of credit is always uh, something that I'm interested in. And, and then kind of lo- looking at Goldman Sachs' acquisition of Green Sky, I think it kind of raised my eyebrows a bit. Um, just looking into kind of what Goldman Sachs are promising their shareholders and, and customers being a very sustainable kind of company. Uh, looking uh, a lot at economic empowerment, uh, sustainable growth, and then buying uh, one of the larger buy now, pay later uh, companies that is basically kind of doing the opposite of economic empowerment and sustainable growth from my point of view. So that, that kind of raised my eyebrows quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big figure and it's um, Goldman has said that, you know, it's... Uh, $2.2 billion to essentially furnish its consumer its consumer banking, um, Marcus, which has been making strides in both the US and the UK. It's, um, Green Skies currently has a loan portfolio of about $9 billion. It says that it's financed more than $30 billion overall. So it's not, a, you know, it, the usual case you see is, is a bank buying up a BMPL firm that's just starting to find its footing, just starting to, to offer its services out. But this is a huge, this is a huge deal. I want to come back to something you said there, Henrik, about how you feel that it's not uh, a particularly sustainable model. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, I, I think uh, humans, we are very kind of reward-seeking junkies. We do kind of easily get tricked into buying things that we don't really need and buying buying it for money that we don't really have. And I think uh, buy now, pay later is just another creative way of packaging credits. You're actually buying things on credit. And then if that credit is 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, it's the same as with a credit card. As long as you pay your bill in time, it's exactly the same thing. But I think the challenge is that people don't. It's so much easier to kind of get tricked into buying something if you don't have to pay for it immediately. 
and I, I, I think this kind of eats away kind of the individual's availability to, to save money for the future and really kind of behave in a sustainable way. I think that that is a, a huge problem. I've been following markets for a long time and I'm very impressed with what they've done. And, and I think looking at what they've done in terms of saving accounts, I think it's great. They're great services. And then they, now they're really turning this around and turning it into credit play as many others. Uh, and I, I totally understand it's, it's a good business model. Companies do make a lot of money on credits. And this is just a new way of packaging credits to kind of trick people into uh, buying things uh, right now instead of later when they saved up and i think this is kind of what we are trying to to hedge a bit uh, at dreams and trying to give people empower them to actually start saving for things that they want and start investing for things that they want in the future and paying off that and, and i think it's a bit depressing to see that so much money is being poured into more credit companies for that reason at the same time as they are writing long uh, sustainability reports and how they empower people to live a more sustainable life and look into kind of um, sustainable growth for individuals and for companies, etc. And I think this is the total opposite. Yeah, I think it's certainly a, a very interesting uh, point you raise there. And it's, uh, I suppose it's the, the differing needs of both a firm, like you said, trying to position itself and to enable its customers to live sustainably within their financial means, but also the, uh, the the devil on the shoulder pointing at the amount of money that by now pay later firms have been uh, able to accrue over the past year and a half, despite, as you said, it, it, the business model not being too dissimilar from traditional credit cards. Um, and speaking of, of, of not wanting to sort of miss the boat on things, um, and I apologize to everyone from the EBA who's listening, but my, uh, my, my number for presentation uh, for this episode is actually a year and it's 2022. Uh, and that's because the European Banking Authority has published a report saying that it wants to uh, increase its understanding on the platformization of both the European Union's banking and payment sector, sector because of a rapid growth in the use of digital platforms to, in its own words, bridge customers and financial institutions. Uh, obviously, a trend that's going to accelerate as more firms offer platform services. Um so it's looking to see how it can enhance its supervisory capacity to monitor developments in the market. Uh, and then by 2022, it's going to try and help all competent authorities in the in the block to deepen their understanding of platform-based business models. And it's an interesting one because you would sort of assume that, you know, pl- platformification isn't necessarily a new thing. I mean, I don't know whether you'd agree, Henrik. It seems like a, a sort of waking up and, and smelling the, the bacon in this case. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, it's a super interesting topic, and I, I think I've been through um, kind of a few rounds with uh, FSAs. I think what they really lack is an understanding of technology. They're coming from the kind of financial space, the compliance space, and then technology is what empowers kind of new modern banks and modern financial institutions to to actually do what they're doing. And if they don't understand technology it's really hard to assess if they're doing it in the right way or in the wrong way. And I think that is a part of the new focus from, from EBA to really increase the knowledge of technology. But that will take time, unfortunately. They should have started 15, 20 years ago with that. 
Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's also a, maybe perhaps there'll be a wider remit in this. And that, um, I mean, I'm sure that you, as someone who has founded a, a new financial services player, uh, have dealt with in the, the questions coming from regulators. But in some cases, we, we have some high profile cases in the UK, for example, where perhaps questions should have been asked a little bit earlier, or at least up and, you know, asked not after the company in question had, you know, spent large amounts of money on marketing campaigns and buying influencers and things like that. And th- there's that sort of stereotypical view of the regulator being always playing catch up. But I, I, at least I suppose in this hand, in, on the other hand, they've said if we, we must understand this by 2022 rather than by saying we need to understand it by 2025. Yeah, yeah. surprising. But it's good that they realize that they need to understand it and uh, actually does something about it. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview styled section where we will focus the discussion down onto a specific industry topic or sector. And our topic for today is all about digital banking, customer service, and the ways in which banks can serve their customers in a uh, digital new normal. Uh, we'll be diving into that in just a second. But first, uh, I want to give Henrik a chance to talk a little bit about Dreams, uh, obviously his role and goals as CEO and founder, uh, what the day-to-day looks like and what the future looks like for the, the challenger. So take it away, Henrik. Thank you, Alex. So we started Dreams back in 2015, launching a B2C product that uh, empowers uh, people to save more money, invest money, and pay off debts, basically. Uh, we created a unique methodology uh, together with behavioral scientists that actually helps has nudged and boost a positive uh, kind of financial behavior, helping them to save more money than they ever thought they could do. So we've been able to attract around 400,000 users in two really small countries, Sweden and Norway, and help them save up for dreams, basically, instead of using buy now, pay later schemes from from various actors. They started over 1.2 million dreams, and they've saved over 5.6 billion uh, so far. What is interesting is that we've learned how to kind of develop these type of products. And then last year, we launched a software as a service platform that kind of powers engagement and boosts financial well-being, allowing banks in other parts of the world to basically license our platform and technology for their customers and doing it under their own brand. So that is what we are focusing a lot on right now is to to really uh, help users around the world to uh, kind of behave better and empower them to reach their dreams without having to borrow money. So our first client is, is live in Ukraine. It's a, a BNP Paribas in Ukraine, uh, where we empower their 2.5 million uh, retail customers to to actually save more money and do it in a, in a very kind of gamified and interesting way uh, to increase engagement, uh, increase satisfaction rate, and also to be able to attract the younger crowd that is actually very kind of uh, picky with what type of services they engage uh, with. So uh, that's what we do at, uh, at Dreams uh, right now. Great. And I, I, I want to pull you up on the thing you, you said there, because we, we mentioned it prior to, to starting the show. Uh, when we talked, we, you sort of sent across some stuff about customer expectation and a, and a shift 
and you know the, for a while we've been talking about what the needs are of millennials and how the topic shifts to gen z and i'm sure it will shift to the generation after them but um we're getting close to something you mentioned in our chat about the you know uh, uh, the wealth transfer that is going to be occurring shortly between um older generations and newer ones and how much alacrity do you see incumbent players or in both large and small um, in which they're trying to provide services to to meet the demands of what is going to be the majority of their users in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think banks in general are focusing on more wealthy, affluent segments and creating services for them because that's how they can show a good return on investment in a very short time. But that also have long-term consequences because what we see now is that $1.5 trillion will shift uh, generations every year in the coming 30 years. So who's going to pick up those that increasing wealth from the older generation if you don't focus on the younger generation? Well, it will definitely go to Chime and it will go to large uh, neobanks that are actually focused Focusing on engaging the younger audience and not the older generations. And I think very few banks have that mindset. We need to invest in the younger ones to be able to take part of the wealth transfer and to be able to be a, a very kind of a healthy financial organization in the next hundred years as well. And I think it, there's a lot of initiatives uh, going on around the world and R&D department, departments and etc. But very few of those initiatives sees the day of the light. They don't reach the maturity where they actually have the guts to launch something to the entire customer base. And if they do, they treat it like a project. It's something that is being kind of set with an end date. And product development is basically the opposite. You launch a rocket and that's when the journey starts. That's a mentality that banks usually don't have. So... I think to be able to cater for the younger audience and kind of their needs and being very customer centric, I think they need to change the way they do product development. First of all, I think they need to start having the guts to actually launch things that are not 100% perfect and then do iterations and start that actual product development process. But foremost, they need to start being very customer centric in everything that they do and really care about the end customer and getting to know them better. And that is very much of a cultural question. Do we have that type of interest in the end consumer or do we only have interest in financial products as such? I think there are so many great financial products out in the market, but Mm -hmm. it's the packaging and it's the UX that kind of frames these financial products that is lacking from many of the incumbent banks. So I think that's the big shift here that needs to take place to be able to actually be part of the, the next generation's um, banking life. I think it's a really interesting point that you make there as well about the customer experience because from you know both your side in, in founding dreams and also, as you mentioned, working with other financial institutions, white labeling your, your services, there might be you know some banks that sort of say, well, hang on, uh, our customer experience uh, used to be 
people coming into the branch and uh, especially the, your local sort of mom and pop credit unions you might get in America or smaller places across Europe. You might see people saying, you know, oh, for us, customer experience is someone coming in, meeting their representative at the bank, a relationship manager even, and discussing their finances uh, over the over a table with a big CRT monitor on it. Yep. So, um, that's our experience. And now you're telling me this has changed. And how well do you see them have, having reacted to that change? Is it something that is still going to take a while or, or do you see them being Well, able- I, I think most financial uh, players got a wake-up call during the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, because the, the, the pandemic uh, forced them to actually meet their customers online. And they have been investing quite a lot in daily banking kind of services because that serves basically their entire customer base and it's a loss-making business if you, if you actually look at it. So... It, that needed to move from the personal meeting into digital automated meeting. But what happened during the pandemic is that the cross and upsell wasn't there in the digital channels. And they didn't have any relationship with the customers, except maybe that they did their transactions, they deposited their salary and they paid their bills, etc. But the rest wasn't really there. So no customers were allowed to actually visit their branch offices uh, during the pandemic. So that speeded up the process. So now we see that banks are really kind of looking into different solutions that helps them bridge the gap where the customer are and where they are. But it's slow. They're large uh, large companies and I think uh, it takes a while to change uh, the mentality, the culture, and then developing things internally takes even longer. We're not talking about months here. We're talking about years, several years to develop good services. I think what's interesting is that many banks have been moving into cloud environments and they've changed their IT policies and they did that a long time ago. But that opens up possibilities for banks to actually work with fintechs and more kind of SaaS-based solutions. They don't have to create everything internally like, like they did before. Uh, so I think that has helped. They have the infrastructure in place. I think it's uh, some of the times it's the policies that needs to change and that takes a while, but the infrastructure is there to be able to work with partners. And if you look at the latest kind of the, the fintech reports and the World Banking report, etc., one of the clearest trends in the banking industry is partnerships to figure out who can serve our customers in the best way with their solution. And I think that trend will be here to stay uh, forever. I think... Uh- it sort of comes across this whole thing that um, it factors into what we talked about earlier with the the shift to the younger generations as well. But obviously, everyone likes to trot out that stat statistic that um, you're more likely to to get a divorce than to change your bank your bank provider. But there's a real risk, you know, with with the newer generations we talked about. Their their needs are different from those who are just quite happy to have a current account, and now they're operating with both. Uh, large tech companies, big tech companies that offer diversified services all in one place. And fintechs are starting to come up and do those as well. I mean, you look at things like things like sa- round, saving pots, which round up your your spend, your purchases for a coffee and round up, you know, 20 pence or yeah. 20 cents and put that into a thing that, you know, something that that was for some reason revolutionary in the, yeah. fintech, in the fintech scene. And these little things that, uh, that are going to be differentiators you know personalization gratification you mentioned gamification earlier you know um and how easy is it is it for incumbents to install that stuff and how much will they be having to play catch up to other firms like big techs or new fintechs 
I think implementing these solutions are really easy if you can find one on off the shelf. It's fairly easy to integrate with banks' systems. I think it's more on the IT policy side with kind of security protocols, etc., where they have quite legacy a legacy way of looking at it. So I don't know if that was your question, Alex, but I do think it's they do have the the infrastructure to do it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's more of a policy governance question to be able to do that. Yeah. So, um, so you see, you think that it's you know the, these little touches and tweaks and the ability to add you know cross selling and upselling. It's not a, it's not a particularly a question of installing it, but rather getting a operational approval, a top down sort of uh, strategy. Yeah, uh, first of all that, but also if if they want to do everything by themselves, I would say that they have a lot of different systems and these systems doesn't really talk to each other. So they know their customers if they just look at all the data that they have, but they can't really manage the data. They can't turn that data into actionable insights. I think that's, that's something that most banks are lacking because they have so many systems and especially the big banking groups who bought as banks in other countries and in, in, in other markets and then basically not replace their systems. They're dealing with a lot of different systems. So I think that is a big challenge and they need to overcome that by putting layers on top of their infrastructure that actually handles the logic, the, the data, the turning data into actionable data and actually taking action to it in the user experience. I think that's key for banks. But also looking at, I have one, one concrete example. I had a dialogue with a bank not very long ago. They, they told me that they don't really feel the competition from kind of incumbent or in the, the, of the new players in the market because uh, they have the same activity on a monthly basis as they had before. And uh, I asked them, how do you measure activity? And like, yeah, we get the salary in and, and then, yeah, we get the salary next month and etc. But what they didn't really look at was what happened in between. The salary came into their account, the salary account, and then it got immediately moved into a new bank. And they handled all the transactions. They had the relationship with their the, the incumbent bank's customers. But they didn't see that as losing a relationship with the customer because they still had the salary being deposited once a month even though the, the, the money went away the next day or the same day into a competitor, basically. Do, do you think that's, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned a minute ago the, the importance of data. Do you think that's that's a, an absolute loss for, for the bank, even though they're quite happy to, to have them, as long as the salary comes in, that's all that matters? I think it's just a matter of how do we define engagement? How do we define a relationship with the customer? Is it just that the salary gets deposited to an account once a month, is that having a relationship with the customer? Or is relationship with the customer something totally different? If you look at, I think it was Deloitte had a, a paper that they published last year and it was trends in millennium banking or something like that. And then uh, 55% wouldn't return to a bad user experience. Uh, I think 70% or something didn't want to bank with traditional banking providers. So I, I think the younger ones, they look at relationships totally different than the bank looks at relationships. And they, they need to change that view of how they measure engagement, basically. 
Here we are in part three for everybody's favourite section, the fintech jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, a buzzword or trend our guest has seen or heard enough of. We'll then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there, an extended sentence. Or perhaps Henrik would like to free one. Who knows? We'll see in a second. So Henrik, what, what buzzword or trendy topic do you wish was uh, banished from the scene or the, or the, the industry? Well, I would like to ban BMPL, buy now, pay later. It's, I think, first of all, I think it's just another word for credits, uh, mm-hmm. as I said in, in the opening part. I also think that if you're serious about kind of your ESG strategies, you want to reach kind of younger audiences, you need to be very purpose-driven. I think that being purpose-driven really have to shift mindset as we talked about earlier need to shift mindset into a customer-centric approach and packaging credit into something that is very tempting uh, buy now pay later i think is it could be could be very harming for the for the customers because it it's a credit and borrows money rarely comes without consequences because someone needs to make money on it and i think if you want to be true to your brand being purpose-driven i think first of all banks need to start looking at the best of the customer's interest and bmpl is just not that according to me so i would like to ban that word from now on sure i mean anyone who's a regular listener of the podcast knows that we talk about is I think it's a natural byproduct of the the, the, the industry right now, but we talk about, end up talking about BMPL quite a lot. Um, in a previous episode, I've made, made my own feelings pretty clear on the subject, but from your perspective, Henry, as you know, someone who's deep in the industry, if BMPL is just like is credit repackaged and, you know, we've, we've heard there are stories out there about how potentially harmful it can be. Why have we seen such an explosion in popularity? Is it just marketing? Uh, what, what's what's the what's the reason? Uh, I don't think it's just marketing. I think it's just great UX. I think the UX of buy now pay later is great. It doesn't do good for the human, but it's great UX. It's so easy to just kind of click pay later, and then I still receive whatever I want to buy. I can go on that trip, and I don't have to worry about paying it right now. I postponed that. I think buy now, pay later is just kind of matching really well how our brains are wired. If you've seen the marshmallows test for, for kids, it's exactly the same thing. Do you want one now or two later? Everyone chooses one now. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what BMPL is. So I, I think it, it's a great way of kind of tapping into exactly how our brains are wired to seek instant rewards. But kind of having a more sustainable way of dealing with your personal finances uh, also we need to trick the brain into saving for your future self we need to kind of stop procrastinating and actually deal with what's coming in 10 years or 20 years or or so and start learning how to behave that way Mm -hmm. Um, so I I think that that's why I want to ban that word because I think it actually it's just a, a, another way of packaging credits with a nice UX, nice marketing, etc. But it's not doing good for the individual nor society. 
it's it, to be completely frank and honest with everyone who is listening and yourself, Henry. I, I've sort of just been waiting for someone to suggest BMPR so I can put it in. Otherwise, I'd have put it in myself. Um, I think it's it's interesting though, isn't it? That um, perhaps in a sort of anti anti hero or heel turn sort of way that BMPL can sort of we can't like like you said we can't put human nature itself in the fintech jail that would require a much longer podcast about where we touch upon all kinds of philosophy and psychology. Um, but it's interesting how much BMPL perhaps can teach the industry about the potential enormous benefits of just having extreme straight through easy to use UX. Yeah, and if you take the learnings from kind of those players that have created these great UX and, and you apply that same methodology into something else that is actually doing good for the individual and society, I think that's a trend I'm waiting for. But unfortunately, too few are focusing on that. But I think it, it's shifting now. Uh, it's definitely shifting. I think uh, during the pandemic, I think more and more have realized that they actually need to have a buffer. Uh, I think more and more... Uh, realizes that also f- looking at from a sustainability perspective, we need to start being much more kind of careful on how we use our money and for what reason we use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't just keep consuming things and wasting things. And I think that trend is, is very clear as well. So uh, hopefully we'll see more and more actors focusing on great UX for other purposes, for more sustainable purposes. Excellent. Yep. BMPL in the FinTech jail. Done. Thank you, Alex. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks very much to Henrik for joining me. But before we sign off, just a quick chance uh, to plug any socials or websites or projects. Uh, Henrik, you got anything uh, you want to plug? Yeah, please, uh, please don't hesitate to check our website, getdreams.com, and uh, look into the Four Bank site. Also, uh, if you're interested in, in uh, soft services that uh, can really increase engagement for the younger audience, uh, then uh, connect me on LinkedIn, Henrik uh, Roswell, um, on LinkedIn, and you'll find me there, and uh, we can have a chat. Excellent. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at, at adhamilton91 or on LinkedIn just by searching for my name. Also worth plugging from my perspective, we by the time this comes out, we will have released a new report, new FinTech Futures report based on a survey of market participants in the mortgage and lending space asking why mortgages remains the final digital frontier for banks. Please check that out. We surveyed a number of people in the, in the sector and brought up some interesting numbers. I'm not going to spoil them here. You'll have to download the report to find out. As for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching FinTech Futures and looking for our logo with the two Fs. If you like the podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service of choice. We'd also really appreciate it if you can help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review, recommending us to a friend, or simply just sharing us around on socials. Thanks very much for all of your support. Uh, We will see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.